Hey there, soccer fans. Welcome back to Build It, the American Non-League Soccer Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by one of the leading lights of US Non-League Soccer, Chris Cassell. As a listener to this podcast, Chris should really need no introduction to you. A staunch advocate for ProRel, a massive voice in his regional organisations, and a passionate youth coach to boot, there are many strings to Chris's bow. We'd hope to do justice to this renaissance man, but sadly time got the better of us this time round. Anyway, we obviously spoke pro-rel for a bit, but don't let that put you off. There are also some male grooming tips and a book recommendation in here too. Something for everyone, as they say. Let's start the show. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Hi, Chris. How y'all doing today? All good, my friend. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Fantastic. So um, you are a fairly well-known person in American non-league soccer. I suspect that anyone listening to this podcast will know the name and probably know the face. Um, how long have you been growing <laughs> that beard, give or take? Uh, I've, I've had it like eight or nine years, maybe. But, you know, it took me about two years to grow. Well, of course, of course. What's the, what's the maintenance? This is nothing to do with soccer at all. I'm just fascinated. What's the maintenance routine? The maintenance is, is extra low maintenance. That's why I have it, actually. I didn't <laughs> like shaving. I hear you. I hear you. But there's no, there's no oils or gels or anything going in the morning? Nah, man. I wash it with head and shoulders. Uh-huh. You can take the boy out <laughs> of West Virginia, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So, Chris, first things first, could you um, give us the very abridged version of your soccer history? How you <clears> came to be where you are today? Uh, well, I started playing soccer when I was five in 1980, and uh, I played all through, you know, as a little kid through high school, played like, you know, after I graduated a little bit, I wasn't good enough to play in college or anything like that, but really liked playing and coached a little bit right out of high school, and then I, um, you know, jobs, college, all that stuff took me away from playing, and then when I had kids, I... Uh, Started coaching my daughter when the coach stepped down because I didn't want to be a dad coach. You know, that's the worst. My oldest daughter, the <laughs> coach of her team, stepped down, and I volunteered. And then from there, it just took off. I, you know, started doing free trainings for kids outside of practice that couldn't afford, you know, to get training from the expensive personal trainers. And I started doing these group trainings for kids from the neighborhood, basically. And, um, and that's sort of what started me on this path to where I am now because people kept going, well, how are you going to make money off this if you don't charge anybody? <laughs> and um, The American I had, dream. Yeah. So the thing is, is I had actually, my best friend uh, is a football guy, like an American football guy. Mm -hmm. He was like a star running back in college and like just this awesome youth football coach. And uh I played football exactly one season growing up, and I was terrible. I didn't like getting tackled. I didn't like, hurts, you know. right? I had the same like, problem with yeah. rugby, yeah. Right, yeah, you know, getting hit real hard by big guys kind of sucks, actually. Yeah. But so, he, you know, I worked with kids. I was a 4-H agent, and we actually – he was like, Chris, you're great with kids. 
come out here and help me coach football. And I was like, Mike, man, I don't really know anything about football. But I came out there and I helped him coach and I had a blast, right? And um, I learned a lot about how to coach from doing that with him and with some other great coaches. But what it really ingrained me ingrained in me was the community aspect of it. Like mm -hmm. they would go out and raise money for equipment, raise money to pay the kids fees. You know, we'd raise money so that we could uh, take kids on trips to play the teams that were 30, 45 minutes away. You know, just the kids didn't have to do anything, the parents, because basically the neighborhood that we were drawing kids from, you know, we have like six housing projects. We, you know, it was low income neighborhood. And as everybody listening to this podcast knows, West Virginia is the poorest state in the country. So you can imagine what the lowest income neighborhood in the biggest city in the poorest state in the country is like when it comes to the economics of all this, right? So uh, I had a lot of that just built into my, this is what sports for kids is supposed to be, right? And um, when I started doing this soccer training, it was because I'm trying to get those same kids the same opportunities that we were giving them in football, right? And um, everybody kept going, well, how are you going to get paid? And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's, you know, they're, they're seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. Like, why am I going to get paid for this? You know? And um, because I was working with a little bit different demographics because it's soccer and that's what plays soccer in the United States. Right. So I started doing some research, like I'm reading about coaching and I'm reading about this and then my kids are playing indoor and then I see how much people are paying those trainers. And I'm like, you pay him $75 an hour to train your kid. This is ridiculous. So then it went from there and then it spiraled out into control because you know how it is when you volunteer, when you start speaking up, they start giving you tasks. No. So the next thing you know, I'm the coaching education director. I mean, I'm the director of coaching for the youth club that I was at at the time, which was all volunteer driven. And then I end up taking over the club that was actually in my neighborhood that I didn't even know existed <laughs> because it only had 13 kids in it. Right. Jesus. And then when I took it over, I just put the same kind of energy and effort I put into everything into it. And we've grown from 13 kids to over 200. We added the adult component and we have like a women, you know, women's teams. We actually mm -hmm. have a full, full on women's league that we run. We have the men's teams. And then plus, I do all the free futsal Friday stuff and, you know, coaching education and free clinics and all that stuff through this other organization that I have called Chemical Valley Athletic Club. But that's mm -hmm. also just a bunch of people that like to play kickball and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> we just do all kinds of cool stuff through that. And we're just friends with that stuff. So and that's just basically what put me onto the path was people going, how do you get paid off of that when you're trying to do stuff for free in soccer for kids? Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what led me to where I am today. Yeah. Just everybody wants to make a book somewhere along the line, right? Right. Yeah. And so how, what's, what's the leap from doing the right thing for the kids in your neighborhood, in your County to being at the forefront of the pro rail revolution, not revolution, movement. <clears throat> so it, it actually comes back to like, the football stuff, right? These kids were, you know, we were predominantly black kids. We were like 90% black kids in our program, right? And, but they had this very clear path from our, our thing, we were called the Midwestern Big Blues, right? And when they were 11 and 12 year olds when we coached them. So we coached them when they were in like fifth and sixth grade. 
Then they went to play middle school football. Then they went to play high school football. Then they played in college, and then they could play in NFL. Guys have done that exact path from that program through those exact steps from the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. And it was very clearly laid out. And then when you start looking at, well, how can a kid from the same neighborhood get from, you know, the west side of Charleston or the east end of Charleston to MLS or the NWSL? How do they get there? And then you see the convoluted path that it has to take. And you see that at every step, it doesn't become less expensive. It becomes more expensive. It becomes more exclusionary. Like an eight-year-old, you know, yeah, okay, it's, you know, a few hundred dollars a year or whatever. At 18 years old, you're talking about they have to travel all over the country all winter and all spring, you know, for showcases and this and playing that USYS National League or the ECNL or whatever. And you're like, man, that's not right and fair, mm-hmm. you know, to kids. And then that's what then the obvious logical jump is, is how do we fix that? And then it becomes, oh, well, every community has to be able to has a club that represents it, that's fighting to make it to the top of the pyramid or is trying to survive by selling its best players on the clubs who are trying to fight their way, you know, to the top of the pyramid or the Champions League or whatever. And everybody has a reason to exist, a reason to find players, a reason to promote soccer in your community, a reason to develop those players and a reason to be as low cost as possible for the people that are the lifeblood of your club, which is your youth players as they come through to your first team. And that yeah. was how I got there. All right. And now it's a natural conclusion for you. Yeah, I, I felt like it was pretty natural. Yeah. No, all good. All good. Um, like I said to you when in our preamble, I don't want this to be a pro-rel thing, right? People who know you yeah. know where you know your stance. And if they're listening to this, they're probably on board or certainly have their opinion set in stone as to what they think of pro-rel. And you know, we're not, we're not going to convert, convert anyone. Now more than ever, everyone knows where they stand on pretty much every topic in the world, right? We know. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do, what's the first step in your work? Actually, no, I'm going to hand over to John. John, give us a question. Well... I, I heard a couple things before I asked my question. I heard a couple things that you said that, that made a lot of sense. The establishing a path for the players and that, the, yeah, I totally agree. And I think in some ways you're right. It's absolutely kind of crazy because everybody's in different layers and levels. And um, But I, I think also one thing that we've talked about is um, having having the path for your for your club, like you said, to, mm-hmm. to find a level that fits for you. My community is 70,000 people. If, if this was a, a beautiful 12 tiered pyramid, we may always be a nine, 10, 11, 12 level club because that's right. what our community can support. And having the recognition that I, I don't have dreams of someday putting a bid in to join MLS or, or really, two or three, like those aren't the dreams. The dreams are to make an impact in the community. So Mm -hmm. um, that, that creates its own strengths and challenges at the same time. But, but both those things. So the pro rel is, is pro rel is really a path for the clubs to grow at their own pace, sort of a Mm -hmm. thing. And I, and I also, I'm fascinated by the pro rel conversation. I would love to get into it because I I feel that I am not educated enough. Right. um, Because it's, I, uh, even Nick being in, in England, 
you tell me things over there and I go, Oh, I didn't know that. And, you know, so I, I kind of like to educate myself all the time, but, um, but I think I think you might've been readying to ask this. It, U.S. soccer is what it is. What would be the first realistic thing that could get done toward change? And, you know, what would that thing be in your opinion? Uh, so the changing of the professional league standards is the linchpin to reform. And um, to me, it's just, it ties into so many different layers of what's possible for clubs. You know, um, being able to make the jump from amateur to pro when your club has become sustainable at a higher level than what it is now is impossible now without bringing on a giant investor. And um, if you change the professional league standards to do exactly what you were talking about, which is allow clubs to find their level, um, that's what it would do. It would allow you to be promoted up, you know, it, well, it would allow a, an actual pyramid to be created where promotion relegation could happen. But even if all that it did was allow different business structures like fan, you know, 100% fan owned or plurality owned, you know, businesses or nonprofits or anything like all of that's illegal right now under U.S. soccer, you know, rules, the professional league standards, like it would allow all those things to happen. And it would do exactly what you said, which was allow communities and clubs to find their level. If you could, if, you know, your club could grow to the point where it could sustainably pay players, you know, you could make that jump to professional soccer. Whereas right now, because I mean, I'm, you know, not to look at your bank account, but I highly doubt that you're worth $35 million or you wouldn't be doing a podcast with me. You know, you could move, make that move forward, you know, and that would be, you know, something that I think is good for soccer. And when every community was able to build, you know, and every community is able to find their level, you would find that the way that youth soccer in America worked would be different because it would be more about creating an atmosphere in your community that built something that was sustainable and was a you know, a keystone for what your community is, you know, whether it's a neighborhood in a big city or an entire city or, you know, an area, because I'm, you know, if your club grew to the point where you were able to be a professional club, it would be, it would reach out into the, you know, 20, 30 miles outside of your community. And people will be like, oh yeah, that's who I'm a part of, you know, and I think that that's the number one thing that holds back, you know, growth and the also allows a more, you know, this kind of gets into some other things that I'm really passionate about, but I think it opens up ownership opportunities for more people. Like currently, you know, there's only a handful of minority owners in all of professional soccer. And I think that we would find that, you know, 
minority ownership groups would start to join communities that currently aren't represented represented like latino communities all across the country and i think that we would find communities in areas that are underserved by professional sports like all of the states that don't have teams the west virginias the iowas the arkansas like that you would see ownership groups come together and figure out how to navigate all of this if they were able to. That's, yeah, you said a lot. I, I actually muted so I could type because you said a lot of things that I, um, I agree with. You, you, you said the key word to me that, that I, I'm very passionate about is when your club is sustainable. And I think yeah. it, that is the piece that Nick and I work very hard to and even, um, you know, at the Midwest Premier League level and, and with our club, sustainability is priority number one. So yeah. I think in the history of U.S. soccer and all these lower level clubs that are coming and that have started, um, but more and more will follow, we mm -hmm. have to continue to find um, models, leagues, partnerships, um, structures within a club itself, within a community that can be sustainable without hemorrhaging money year after year, because you're not mm -hmm. always going to be able to go to your uh, group of five buddies and everybody throw 10 grand in because yeah. you wanted to look good on Twitter. And I, I think that's a, like, we're still, I think at the forefront of that. The other thing mm -hmm. that, that I feel strongly about is um, I'm just, uh, so there's all the suburbs, to the west of Chicago, and then there's 20 miles of cornfield, and then there's us. Just across that 20 miles of cornfield are some of the some very big youth clubs, mm -hmm. and and you you touched on that sell on, um, like develop a player and be okay letting them go to a bigger club to a better mm -hmm. opportunity, whether that's a, a youth or at the adult game, and I think what happens in in soccer and in business and in human interaction is that nobody wants to be second. UPSL doesn't want to be below NPSL. NPSL right. doesn't want to be below USL League Two. Um, Midwest Premier League doesn't want to be below UPSL. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to say they're absolutely the best. Well, this is my own personal opinion. If one, if one of these national leagues would say, listen, I, let me be the feeder program. Everybody comes through me and you can take my top team every year from each conference. It, you create the gateway and yep. you, your business soars because you're willing to say, I'm the second best national league there is, but you have to come through me to get to them. Mm -hmm. And it could, be, it could be tremendous. And I think that arrogance in, in leadership and, and wanting to control everything slows us down and delays that, that growth that you were talking about. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree. You know, I think that because the way that soccer in America is designed to work is to create a bunch of competing leagues that have interests that aren't necessarily in the best interest of soccer in the United States, for one thing, and in what's in the best interest of the league isn't always 
what's the best interest of its member clubs. And I think that that's where a lot of these hiccups are. And in my opinion, and this, this opinion, I will admit, has changed over the last few years. And um, anybody that follows me on Twitter sees me say that American soccer works exactly as it's designed to work. I used to say that it was broken, right? And a lot of people say that soccer in the United States is broken from the youth game to the amateur game to even the professional game. And I actually disagree with that statement. Soccer works exactly as it's been designed to work. Um, you know, the rules that are in place, the constraints that are in place, everything has been designed to create a series of gatekeepers. And exactly what you're talking about is how gatekeeping works because they want to have the control, like you mentioned. And, you know, you can say whatever else you want to about it, but it's because the people at the top of each one of these organizations are self interested. Not necessarily that they're bad people. I'm not saying that they're bad people. So, I mean, it kind of sounds like I'm saying that, but it's their job is to be self-interested. Their job is to look out for the NPSL. Their job is to look out for the UPSL. You know, their job isn't to look out for soccer in the United States. That's actually U.S. soccer's job is to look out for soccer in the United States. And they are who has created this system that creates a bunch of competing interests all throughout the youth game, the adult amateur game, and the professional game. And because they've designed the system to work the way that it is and the way that it does, we are where we are. Do you think there's, and I don't know the politics of it, do you think there's a way to to have dual systems here where MLS and USL do their thing and then NISA or a, you know, competing, essentially a competing federation, I guess it's all sort of under us soccer, but. Yeah. I, so yeah, but I, I, not to cut you off, but I'm sorry if you have more, but yes, yes. I, I think that it is, very possible for there to be a system on one side of people that and clubs and organizations that want to have an open pyramid over here and the other side which is we want to continue being gatekeepers and we want to continue to create artificial scarcity and we want to continue doing what we do over here and i there's nothing within us soccer other than the professional league standards stopping somebody, a group of people from creating that. But until we have the, the changes in the professional league standards, that would be minor. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm saying you have to throw them out, you know, which the antitrust case, the NASL antitrust case, very, you know, what maybe could do. But if there was just a second set of, or a change in the professional league standards, or even a, hey, if you're going to create an open pyramid, this is what it has to look like, separate set of professional league standards, it would be possible, doable, 
And in my opinion, which everybody out there knows it really well that follows me on social media, I think it would be the best thing that ever happened to soccer in the United States, and it would lead to explosive growth and investment in the game. Do you think that, do you think that we are ready? And I'm going to steal Nick's, this is Nick's uh, thing. Culture of the sport in the United States is far from what it is in the countries that celebrate pro-rel. And we always talk about England because mm -hmm. obviously with my buddy Nick. But I could walk down the street and people don't have a clue about tears, pro-rel. Most of my neighbors probably still don't know that we have a club in our community and that the president of the club lives in their subdivision and that um, we play and when we play and what league we play in. And that's at the very root of all of this is that investment you talk about comes from an education in what that even means, right? Um, it's soccer's not covered on major sports networks. Um, and as far as like ESPN, like you don't, you don't see sports center highlights I don't know if anybody watches SportsCenter. Bad example. You get my, you get my point. No, I, it's I not mainstream. That. It's not mainstream. Absolutely. So if it's not mainstream, in, in mainstream saying that the vast majority of the population, it's still maybe the fifth sport in the country. And it's a f probably decent drop from four to five, maybe whatever. The big investment may not come. And if it does come, there's no butts in the seats to support it. And I think we're, I think we're on the right trajectory, but I, I agree with what Nick has told me. Like the culture is not there. People don't really care enough about the sport yet. There's a small percentage that care passionately like us, but most people of the 350 million or whatever we have in this country really don't care. So my answer to that is always, um, so my brother made this post on Facebook a long time ago and I've, I copied it and have shared it a few times, but the gist of it is he's a soccer fan and he pretty much only watches soccer from Europe. And, um, you know, he has the same exact experience as me growing up and everything. But uh, he said, I want to see either the best that there is, or I want to see local. Like I want the best beer in the world, or I want the beer that's made down the street. You know, and I feel like people like yourself and the other club owners all across this country will be able to tap into that. We're local and we have a chance to do something special in every community all across this country that currently isn't served by MLS. Okay. And what that does is, is that taps into the American sports culture of the Cinderella story, Hoosiers, underdogs, you know, um, coming from the bottom and, and making it to the top, the small town versus the big city, high school sports and college. And that's what American sports culture is. And right now, soccer doesn't tap into that because we have the biggest teams in America are in L.A. and New York. But when you compare them to the biggest teams in the world, they're not the Lakers and they're not, you know, 
Liverpool or whoever you cheer for, you know, or Bayern Munich or whatever. And it's easy when you watch it on TV. But when everybody in America buys into the same system and idea of how soccer should work, I think that everybody goes, oh, well, I'm a Bayern fan first, but, you know, the Calb is my team around here, and that's who I really go and watch every weekend. You know, and I think that I think that that's how it would work, you know, and everybody loves Friday night football when they're growing up, you know, and I think that when you can dream about going from the, you know, the ninth tier to the fifth tier, and we get to play the teams from Chicago, or we get to play the big teams from Milwaukee or wherever, you know, everybody will buy in. There's no reason to buy into DeKalb right now. You don't get to play LAFC. Why, you know, why should I care? Edit, edit, I can't edit, even dream edit, about edit, that. Quick, edit that out. Edit that out. There's lots of reasons to, to believe in <laughs> DeKalb right now. Chris doesn't work in marketing, clearly. Um, listen, no, Chris, a good I know, point. Yeah. We are, we're running out of time, unfortunately. We're going to pick this up again another time for sure because this, this has gone dead, totally off script where I was planning on going, but I'm loving it. Um, I just want to ask you very quickly. You mentioned that your youth team has an adult division. Well, not an, uh-huh. adult, but yeah, an adult outlet. Yeah. Um, what is stopping you guys doing what DeKalb are doing or doing what any club within, you know, why, why <laughs> aren't you part of this pyramid, whatever the pyramid may look like? Well, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we don't play in a regional league because we don't want to spend that money. I mean, that's mm-hmm. 100% what it is. You know, we offer services, you know, soccer to adults in our community. And, you know, there's the Southern West Virginia Adult Soccer League also that's local that's like a little more – competitive than what we play in you know what I mean but that's literally all it is we don't see a benefit above that's worth what we do now you know what I mean does that make sense to y'all no it totally does it's like you've got if you if you're paying out five dollars or 50 bucks or 500 bucks there's got to be a return on it right right basic sense it's my money I want to know what I'm doing with it I guess my altruistic point of view would be would it not further your cause as to, to be to have a profile for the soccer that you're involved with over and above the youth stuff? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not like now you, yes, we talk about it all the time. I, I mean, like that's just, it's just that simple. We talk about it all the time. How can we make this happen and make it financially viable where it doesn't harm our other efforts, Mm -hmm. you know, because if we have to take money from our limited pool and take that from either our kids or our free programming to fund the other thing, it's not worth (laughs) it. That's a terrible idea, isn't it? Just um, as a closer, um, and I want to pick your brains on that again another time. Have you ever heard of the book? um, I forgot what it's called now. I had it already. Outcasts United. I have not, no. Okay. Um, you should hunt it down. Well, get it from your local library. Don't pay, pay Amazon, obviously. Um, it's a, this is the story of um, a young lady who came over from the Middle East 
to Atlanta, I believe, the suburbs of Atlanta, um, and set up a refugee team um, with kids from, from refugee families. And I just think there's an awful lot of echoes with how you got involved and what ignited your passions. And I think you will absolutely freaking love it. So no, that, yeah, no, I'm definitely want to look that up. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you the link out later. And anyone listening to this is absolutely should go and hunt it down as well. It's about 10, 15 years out of date. It's not a contemporary book, but it's still fantastic. I think they're talking about making a film of it anyway. Um, listen, Chris, have you got any questions very quickly before we wrap this up and work out how to speak next time? Um, no, I look, <laughs> the conversation was great today and I, I appreciate you all having me on to have this conversation because I mean, you know, these are the kind of conversations to me that have to happen and you all are doing a service for the soccer community by having these conversations. I appreciate what you all that's, are doing. That's the, that's the goal, right? With the Twitter, we're just shouting into an echo chamber at the end of the day. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure everyone's on board with the message. We, you and I and John and the club and your community, we're all coming from the same, aiming for the same end goal, just different ways of getting there, right? Um, exactly. But yeah, I think the more of these conversations that we have, the less shouty we become and this isn't necessarily about soccer anymore, is it? But the less shouty we become and the more we listen and learn and understand and you know, try to change things respectfully, I think we're, mm -hmm. we're heading down the right path. John, any closing thoughts? Oh, I, Chris, I, uh, you and I spoke the other day briefly and you and I could speak hours and hours and hours probably. So I look forward to uh, woe betide anybody, future conversation. Woe betide anybody who gets stuck in an elevator with you two. I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's my learning from this. Chris, I'm go we're going to hook up with you afterwards because um, we need to do this again and we need to do it properly and we need to not rush it and put up aside seven hours or something. Let's get through. Right. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, sir. We'll All right. You thank later. you. You have a great day. Now the time has come for shall return we were so glad we could make it but so sad we gotta run well it might be a long time till we raise another glass you can rest assured that next time we'll have ourselves a laugh